But one of the things that has always intrigued me about Nicodemus is his apparent interest attraction to Jesus, which seems to be countered by an equally noticeable caution in his response to him. And because John the Evangelist is clear that he wrote his gospel in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, John clearly decided that reflecting on this man's story helps us understand the dynamics of belief and perhaps even our own dynamics of belief or struggles with belief. So that is what I would like for us to do on this Trinity Sunday, reflect on this conversation of Nicodemus and Jesus. But by the way, the Trinity does make itself in there as well. Well, what do we know about Nicodemus? He was a Pharisee, a rabbi, and a member of the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were, as we remember, a Jewish group committed to religious renewal. They believed in the resurrection of the dead, and they took trying to live a righteous life very seriously. This included fastidiousness in ritual purity around food and table fellowship. So no eating with sinners or Gentiles, as well as fasting more frequently. You remember the parable of the Pharisee, which Jesus tells, in which a man stands before God and says that he fasts twice a week, unlike that tax collector over there. So Nicodemus was probably a scrupulously righteous man, at least in his own mind. He was particularly attentive to his relationship with God. He also served in the Jewish governing body called the Sanhedrin. The Romans permitted the leading Jews to run local affairs so long as Caesar got his taxes and there were no uprisings. We will read later in the Gospel of John that Nicodemus had an important voice in that group. He was politically savvy, and in addition, he valued just process. Well, something provoked Nicodemus's curiosity about Jesus to the point that he wanted to talk with him personally, perhaps privately, although it is possible that a few of his followers went with him. But he definitely wanted to be unobserved by his colleagues, who are at this point antagonistic towards Jesus. Remember that in the Gospel of John, we've already had a cleansing of the temple in which Jesus said, destroy this body and I will raise it in three days. So Nicodemus, aware of uh, the danger of this meeting, comes at night so as not to risk his political standing. And there is Jesus waiting for him. Now, it is interesting that the verse which directly precedes this passage about Nicodemus, which might actually introduce it, is this. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, 
for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus was not naive about human nature or about motivations. And this comment from the narrator specifically highlights Jesus' awareness of human untrustworthiness. Yes, of course, Jesus recognizes and rejoices over what is good in people. But he also knows that he has come into the world to challenge and eventually die because of human sin. And so when Nicodemus comes to him in the dark and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him, Jesus is not snowed over by the affirmations. He is well aware of what is going on in Nicodemus's mind and heart. In fact, Jesus' answer is to Nicodemus' statement is responding to the real underlying issue that Nicodemus hasn't even mentioned. Jesus says to this compliment, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, or it could be translated again, the word anathane in Greek means both of those things, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, what is Jesus saying? It sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? Well, he is certainly saying that human biological birth into Judaism is not sufficient in and of itself for being in right relationship with God. And that is very pertinent because in a few sentences, we're going to read that Jesus' work on the cross was God's love for the world and that it was for whoever believed in him. In other words, God's special covenantal love was not just reserved for the biological descendants of Abraham. For a Pharisee like Nicodemus, that very idea of Gentiles being scooped into the class of covenant people would have been a bit surprising and even repellent. According to Jesus, the family of God was widening drastically. And that would mean Nicodemus would need to include a lot of new people at his dinner table, which could be said by all Christians at all times, forever and ever, all men. There are always new people that we need to include at our dinner table in this wide family of God. But also, Jesus is saying that something really drastic has to happen to Nicodemus before he can even see the kingdom of God. And there's irony here because here is the king of the kingdom of God standing right in front of Nicodemus and Nicodemus doesn't recognize him. Anyway, Jesus gets really personal really fast. I mean, here was Nicodemus, polite, religiously scrupulous, civic-minded, well-educated Nicodemus, thinking he was going to have a good, private, intellectual discussion 
you know, rabbi to rabbi with this interesting man. He was going to sound him out and maybe play a mediating role with the Sanhedrin. And Jesus says to him that he cannot even see the kingdom of God until something the equivalent of rebirth happens to him. Jesus is very personal. He focuses on the man in front of him and what he needs to hear for his own salvation. The conversation continues. Nicodemus seems to get caught up in the rebirth analogy and takes it literally. And then I love this part. I think as they were standing, wherever they were, and the wind might have rustled the palms or something, and Jesus further explains to Nicodemus that what needs to happen to him is not a biological rebirth, it is spiritual. And like the wind, it is not something that can be manipulated by human contrivance. It's from God. It's a gift from God. That's what he needs. Then Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Now Jesus answers Nicodemus with a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, Jesus reminds Nicodemus of things he should already know as a teacher of Israel. Jesus says that in order for this necessary spiritual rebirth to take place, the Son of Man must be lifted up, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Well, what is Jesus talking about? In the book of Numbers, we read about a time when the Israelites were dying because of poisonous snakes in their camp. And I will just add that the reason that the poisonous snakes were in the camp is that the Israelites were really tired of the bad food and they didn't really appreciate Moses much and they kind of wished that God had never saved them and gotten him across that river anyway. So God sent the snakes to sort of refocus them and remind them of their dependence on God for their very lives. So they ask God how to cure them from these snake bites and God gives them a cure. It was to make a bronze serpent and hold it up on a staff and have the people gaze on it. It's such a strange remedy. We wouldn't really probably accept it if we went to the doctor's office and we were told that that was what we were to do. And yet, it worked. And Jesus is referencing that moment he effectively says to Nicodemus, you know how those people in the camp were goners? How they needed to gaze upon that cursed snake to be healed? Well, I am going to be raised up like that snake and my body on the cross will heal people to everlasting life. And that will be the source of the spirit gift that you need so badly, Nicodemus. Because without me and what I'm going to do on the cross, you are a goner. Now that is a drastic thing to say to a rabbi who has scrupulously lived 
a righteous life. And then, in case Nicodemus or anyone else hasn't made the connection between the snake being lifted up and Jesus, we have verse 316. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, we do not hear Nicodemus's reply to all of this. He doesn't go flying back to the Sanhedrin proclaiming faith in Jesus. We do know that. It's a mystery what he was thinking to himself at that moment. What cost-benefit analysis was going through his head? What confusion quite frankly, was going through his head. But what we also know is this, that in chapter 7, when there is an inquiry about arresting Jesus, the religious authorities ask, have any of the Pharisees believed in him? Well, Nicodemus is there. I can just imagine how his heart was racing at that moment. Why? Because he had gone to Jesus in the night. Because he had felt that wind blowing. Because he had seen truth and had it lovingly spoken to him. Because he was still wrestling in himself about following him. Because he had so much to lose if he really spoke up on Jesus' behalf. And so he says this apparently impartial thing that he thinks both sort of defends Jesus and does not expose his own involvement with him. Here's the, the verse. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? I mean, it's a pretty reasonable thing to say in his position. I've said things like that that didn't really reveal how much I believed in the resurrected Jesus but sounded reasonable at the time or wouldn't get me in any trouble. But the fact is, it's a very tentative response to his encounter with Jesus. And I do not mean to judge Nicodemus because, as I said, my response on many occasions has been lukewarm at best. And I was not standing in the midst of an angry mob. But I can only imagine Nicodemus's subsequent regret at his own caution in that moment. He didn't want to risk his standing, his reputation as a learned rabbi. Also, defending Jesus was getting dangerous. Ironically, though, his colleagues dismiss his comment anyway and insult him, saying, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. In other words, they dismiss him as ignorant, despite his attempt to maintain credibility. But because God so loved the world, despite Nicodemus's caution and all other iterations of human obstinance and refusal to love God back, Jesus, the Son of God, willingly accepted the unjust sentence 
that the world placed upon him. He carried his cross, was nailed to it, and was lifted up. And somehow, mysteriously, accepting that Jesus did that for us. That it was in his power and his choice to die for our sins gives us the status of God's beloved children. Oh my God, what a status! What a status! Eternal, beloved children. We become joint heirs with Christ, God's one and only Son, who came into this world not just to teach us, not just to save us, but to make us part of his eternal, beloved family. I know a story that my son was just actually using in his uh, master's thesis paper that he just turned in. It's a story of a priest who I knew who served in the Caribbean for a summer. And he, he was a little self-important, you know. I mean, he was the new Anglican priest or whatever. He comes to this Caribbean island and uh, he meets a man dressed in dungarees who's leading a... Um, uh, pig or something, and this priest says, well, hello, he says, uh, you know, I'm Reverend so-and-so, uh, come to be here for the summer, who are you? And the guy says, who am I? He says, who am I? I am a child of God. And he goes away. Like, that guy knew who he was. He knew he was part of God's eternal family. What has your response to been, been to this man, Jesus? Have you perhaps wanted just a theological discussion with him rather than a transforming personal relationship with him that makes you a part of God's family? Have you sensed that he wants to, you to know him better, but you are afraid of what that might cost? A relationship with Jesus is costly. It has cost people friends. It's cost them half their fortunes or all of their fortunes. But the thing is, there's a cost to not following Jesus. At the very least, it is a life that ends in isolation and fearfulness. So, if you feel some empathy, some recognition of yourself in this man, Nicodemus, cautiously responsive, but not entirely, then you might pray, Heavenly Father, through the power of your Spirit, show me your Son, Jesus. Not just as a teacher, not just as my Savior, as my friend, Show me how to love him, Lord. I want to know your son. Amen.